Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. On the Blog Talk Radio Network, we are live and nationwide thanks to our friends at SpeakerMatch.com. That's the world's largest online speakers bureau. If you are a speaker or your meeting planner, get together at the virtual marketplace at SpeakerMatch.com. And talking about getting together, that's what our guest is all about today. He's the author of the new book, Bellwether Blues, A Conservative Awakening of the Millennial Soul. And he's all about bringing young people into the conservative flock. I think he's got his hands full, so that's why we wanted to talk to him. John Jacobowski uh, joins us. And in, in the first question I have to ask, Jacobowski or Jackabowski? Hey, Burke, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Jacobowski is the correct pronunciation. Tell me about that name. Where, where is your, uh, your heritage? What is your lineage? So uh, my ancestors came from Poland, and they were, uh, I think, moving away from the pogroms that were happening in Russia, because I think there's some Jewish uh, blood back there. And then when they came to the United States in the early 1900s, they kind of eliminated that, that past to avoid persecution, and then moved into the Midwest. So we had no idea that we had any Jewish blood until recently doing all these Ancestry.com testing, and we kind of found that out. You are now a 23andMe veteran. Very good. Listen, this book is uh, is taken off. It just came out this spring. It's already in its second printing, and and I wonder why that is. Tell me why you think your book is is really generated the, the sort of attention it has with you know the Rush Limbaugh show. You've got uh, Governor DeWine of Ohio uh, singing its praises. What about Bellwether Blues has struck a chord? Well, it, it really is exciting to see how it's taken off, and I, I think it's uh, there's multiple variables, uh, many of which are outside of my control. Uh, but the one thing that I was hoping for was that when people read the book, they would be challenged to put down the phones, to step away from the computers, and invest into authentic relationship. I think we're in a season where, with the 2020 election uh, coming up, everybody's asking themselves the question, what can I do? to be part of this election, to have influence in it, and given current day events, nothing could be more important than having an authentic relationship with somebody who doesn't look like you and might not be your age. And that really is the ultimate recommendation from Bellwether Blues. The book we're talking about, Bellwether Blues, A Conservative Awakening of the Millennial Soul, available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, wherever you can get books. And you can check out BellwetherBluesBook.com as well. The author, Jonathan Jakubowski, joins us on the Big Time Talker podcast. If, if somebody asks you, hey, what's your new book about, what's the answer? Well, thanks, Burke. I, that, that is a question I've been asked. I'm continually, continuously learning how to answer it because, of, of, as I've learned, a book is a, a lot of information, and you want to sum it up into bite-sized pieces that people can walk away with. Uh, what I'll say is in, in 2018, I received a call from a uh, university in New York who was doing research on swing states and specifically swing counties and i found out that the county that i live in wood county is one of only 59 counties in the entire nation of 3142 counties that is a bellwether county is a swing county that that has voted for president bush in 2000 then bush in 04 then president obama in 08 and then in 12 and then president trump in 16 and that fact was interesting enough for me to say there's something there i need to dig deeper into that and then being a millennial myself, I, I wanted to really understand how did millennials vote in 16? What caused them to swing? Because most of us in the conservative movement have basically assumed that this generation is lost all the way to the left, and there's not really any hope of recovering them, and we're in for a, a blue tidal wave in the future. 
And what I found, Brooke, is the uh, that's actually not the case. Uh, there have been a lot of millennials that are finding themselves in a position where they're leaving the left. And I say, as I note, note in the book, it's because the left has left them. The left has gone so far to the left, it's abandoned the basic classical tenets, or, uh, the tenets of classical liberalism, which Thomas Jefferson and James Madison would have espoused. I mean, the Democrats of today look very different from the Democrats of the 1980s and 1990s. And that's left a whole bunch of millennials in no man's land because they're not ready to embrace the conservative movement, uh, the Republican Party to them might be anathema, but they're not really happy with uh, the Democrats either. So that's why they have the bellwether blues. That's where the title comes from. And uh, the book is really about stories of millennials who did make that change and why they made that change in Swing County, America. And uh, I provide recommendations at the very end of the book to critique modern methods of conservative persuasion in order to encourage conservatives to be more effective at reaching this generation. John Jakubowski is our guest today. His book, Bellwether Blues, is available now. It's a conservative awakening of the millennial soul. And you talk about how the uh, the Democrats have moved so far away from the Democratic Party of the 80s and 90s, and yet you've got a guy who's uh, their presidential nominee who has been around since the 70s. So what say you to somebody like uh, Joe Biden? Well, I think Joe Biden has moved with the party. Um, as uh, the party has shifted, it's shifted to the left because that's where a lot of the money is. I mean, when you see movements like defunding the police, that wouldn't be even be an idea that would be considered uh, back in the 1980s. The, the existence of what blue dog Democrats, where you could have a pro-life, pro-life Democrat who aligned with the Democratic Party on some of the other issues, those no longer exist anymore. And through a bunch of evidence presented by the Pew Research Center, uh, which is a, a center non-political organization, it demonstrates that there has been a pretty massive shift in uh, leftist ideology. And the biggest uh, issue that I think they're facing is their abandonment of freedom. As we look at the blue states' response, states governed by Democratic governors, and what they have done to, to quelch the freedoms of their citizenry, it's leaving a bad taste in the mouth of millennials, to say the least. So you talk about, uh, in a broad term, you know, being nice and sort of reaching across the aisle and, and, and getting along, which is a little different than the way it's done in the current White House. And yet, just in, in what you just said to me, you, you talked about uh, folks in the Democratic Party being leftists. And I wonder, you know, at, at what point you're able to sort of put swords down and reach across the aisle if, if any of us are ever going to get anything done uh, in Congress. And I should mention to our, our listeners that um, you're not just a, a guy who wrote a book out in his woodshed. You've got a master's degree in public policy from Georgetown. You're the executive chairman of the Republican Party in your county. Uh, this book is an Amazon bestseller. So you know something of, of what you speak. You are in a, a state with uh, the last couple of governors there have been somewhat more centrist. Uh, you know, they, they tried to get along with the other side. But, but at, at what point can you actually meet in the middle? Yeah, thanks, Burke. I, I do find myself in the political realm having many conversations with a lot of folks that are older than me. And even at the very beginning, the genesis of Chapter 1 of the story of Bellwether Blues relates to a, a baby boomer who served in the military and asking the question, what am I to do with the future of my country? Uh, so I, I look at who the audience is for this book. It, it is not the legislator. It's not the newscaster. It's not the journalist. It's not somebody who has a platform and is out there uh, fighting the fight for truth. That's, that's a different target market entirely. Neither is it a book that's written to party leadership. 
It's really written to Mr. and Mrs. Conservative who are sitting on their couch at home asking the question, what can I do to make an impact in my nation? So I wouldn't even say it's necessarily reaching across the aisle. It's just reaching into your life to find relationships close enough to you that you can persuade and invest into. And as I note at the, at the end of the book, I talk about how um, a lot of people are tempted to use Facebook posts, to use the, the modern tactics of persuasion to reach hundreds of people. But I believe that that element of persuasion is far less than becoming an ace of a few relationships. Find your neighbor, your grandson, your granddaughter. Reach into your family and find somebody who, who's, not, who's not totally somebody you've had a conversation with related to the political sphere of what's happening in 2020. And I believe that as these individuals find those deep relationships, it's going to lead to the currency of trust that will allow for there to be a dialogue that is beneficial, that is meaningful, and that is deep. And if conservatives can become effective at doing that, then they will have an impact on this election and elections to come. John Jacobowski is our guest. The book is Bellwether Blues, and he's something of a millennial political expert. Um, talk to me a little bit about the differences you see in, uh, as we come out of the, the coronavirus, uh, the pandemic, on uh, you know, red states opening quickly and blue states staying locked down longer, and, and how this public health crisis seemed to devolve into a political sparring match. Yeah, it's really something. It's it's not anything I could have anticipated when I was writing the book. Uh, I I just seeing how all of this has played out at the the here the this point in 2020 it's going to be written down in history books. The the chaos that we've stepped into. And uh, one of the things that's most beautiful about our country, uh, the country that we live in, is, is the system of federalism. Uh, we have the ability to devolve authority to the local and state level so that the citizens of our nation have more persuasion and more ability to influence the systems of government that are over them. And what we're seeing is major differences between governors in blue states who are trying to suppress church attendance, for example, trying to limit uh, business expansion on the basis of their fears of the coronavirus pandemic versus other states uh, and the, some of the states that are more free, relatively speaking, like Texas and Florida, and even my state in Ohio, where there's more common sense measures being brought to the table than the state up north of us, Michigan, you see this level of freedom allowing us to breathe and have the chance to return back to our businesses, return back to our communities. In a world where relationship is, is even more valuable than ever before, it's critical that we have the opportunities to engage with our neighbors, get back to our businesses, see the economy come back again, because if we don't, the second pandemic, the lagging pandemic of, of isolation, loneliness, depression, job loss, financial loss, financial harm, these things are going to happen more and more in abundance. And I, I think that that distinction is going to play a major role in the 2020 election. There's a lot of people I've spoken with, Burke, who aren't big fans of President Trump. They don't necessarily like the way that he tweets or the, the, the way that he, that he speaks or talks. But what they're seeing are the policies that he's implemented and the policies of these red state governors are attractive to them. And they, they experience that freedom and they recognize that who I vote for has major implications in my quality of life and the freedoms with which I get to live. So are we at a point where we have two bad choices then for president and we need to look a little closer inward to to our local and state governments and, and let Washington do what Washington will do? So regardless of, uh, of a given election, I, I'm always a champion for uh, devolving authority to the local level. Uh, our system, which was created back at, in the Constitution, um, the Constitutional Convention of 1789 following the Declaration in 1776, 
was a champion of creating Republican government, which means we vote in people who represent us and we lend to them authority. We don't give them authority. We lend them the authority. And then after a certain period of time, uh, we decide whether or not they have handled that authority well. And, and if they haven't, then we vote them out of office. Well, as you know, Burke, when you're dealing with nationwide candidates, you, have, you and I have little ability to persuade and influence somebody that's representing constituencies of a million-plus people. But I have much more authority and persuasion to influence somebody at the local level, my state senator or my commissioner, uh, somebody who's close by. So regardless of who's in office, I will always be a champion for local government. That does not mean, however, that we should sit this election out, I, not at all. There are significant and stark differences between the two candidates that are running for president that have major implications on our life. Whether or not we like it, government has grown to a level that is untenable and a, government, and a level that is dangerous so that if somebody gets in office who has a nefarious vision for what they would like to do with our freedoms, those things can really hurt us and harm us and cause uh, severe pain into our lives. And that's why I am uh, ha happy to continue representing and standing for the principles of conservatism. And with President Trump specifically, uh, there are tweets that cause me to wince, and there's times where communication certainly uh, causes is heartburn. But when I look at the principles that have been integrated through public policymaking and then the justices that are on the bench, I think it gives us the best chance at being able to sustain the freedoms that were represented at the Constitutional Convention way back in 1789 and the hundreds of thousands of people who have died to sustain those freedoms. Those freedoms will remain if we continue to stand on those principles. Jonathan Jakubowski is our guest. The book is Bellwether Blues. Um, you're the executive chairman of the Republican Party in your county, so I'd love to get your thoughts and have you weigh in on uh, the abundance of mail-in voting. You know, you talked about the president, some of the things he tweets. He certainly has come out strong saying that, that mail-in voting is bad news. Are there really dangers in that, or is this the responsible thing to do? Uh, no, Brick, there definitely are dangers with mail-in voting, but we have to define mail-in voting. Uh, so states like Ohio, where we have legislation in place that uh, makes it illegal to do ballot harvesting, uh, meaning you take a whole bunch of applications and a whole bunch of ballots and you take care of getting those uh, turned in. You can turn in hundreds or thousands at a time. Uh, Ohio has banned that, and Ohio's process of uh, mail-in voting is a process whereby there are applications that are placed. So a person receives an application, fills out the application, submits it, and then receives an absentee ballot in the mail. That's much more effective than what Nancy Pelosi is recommending in sending out ballots to millions of households throughout the country. And in some counties, there are places where there are more registered voters than there are people that actually live in the county. So what's going to happen to the tens of thousands of ballots that don't have a person that really represents them? And in states where ballot harvesting is legal, they could just go out and fill those ballots out, turn them in, and we now have a problem with the integrity of our election system. Uh, there's a line that a former state uh, secretary of state, John Husted, who's now our lieutenant governor, used to say, and he said, we want to make it uh, easy to vote and hard to cheat. And that's what we need to do with mail-in mail -in voting. And I think anybody who wants to vote in person, they should also be able to. That's a freedom. It's a fundamental right that I think Americans should be able to embrace in the 2020 election. Well, look, I don't think anyone uh, would disagree with that, that you want to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. But, in fact, if you put too much of a clamp down, uh, aren't you making it harder for people to exercise their, their right to get out there and vote? I mean, do you want – uh, you know, your 85-year-old grandmother to go to a poll in, in, in Queens, uh, New York, and, and potentially get sick? 
Oh, definitely not. And, and that's why I think Ohio really represents the right balance for that. That's, that's why we have uh, an absentee ballot application. Uh, that's why those applications are sent to every household and every person has the opportunity uh, to vote via mail and it's, it's paid for postage is paid. Um, so it, it is, it is easy to walk through that process easier than ever before. And, um, the polling precincts, so like our county here in Wood County for 30 days before the election, anybody can go into that office at a time that they, they choose to go in and vote, uh, for the election that's at hand. So I really think that we represent the best of, of what that looks like. And, and I think there's common sense ways to go about making sure that those populations that are at risk are able to apply uh, for the ballots that they need. I think the problem is, is when we send out millions of ballots to all sorts of people who, even though they're registered, might not even exist. They might not even live in the county. Maybe they have several houses and they're living in different constituencies. That, that's where there's all sorts of potential flaws that could be brought into our election system. And since we all agree that we want to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat, we've got to strike the right balance. Makes sense. Jonathan Jakubowski, our guest. His book is Bellwether Blues. We're talking politics with him today uh, in the run-up to the 2020 election. And I wonder what your thoughts are on the aftermath of this pandemic and how that may or may not be a factor for millennials, for folks your age, in the 2020 election. Do you think it's going to matter at all, or by the time we get to uh, the fall, is, is it going to be ancient history? Well, it's a great question, and uh, let me answer the question in a nuanced format. Uh, as I talk about in the book, for conservatives, you, you don't want to win or you can't win. It's not possible to win the entire millennial generation. And a majority of millennials still will vote to the left of center. Uh, that's, that's not something that I'm saying is a reality at this point in time. What I am saying, however, is that a millennial in Ohio, in northwest Ohio, is very different from a millennial on the east coast or west coast. And as we know, there are maybe 12 to 13 swing states in the nation who will really decide what the outcome of this next, next election looks like. We don't know what all, the, what all those states are, but in most elections, there's 12 to 13 swing states that make a difference. And uh, my argument is, is that as we seek to reach out to those specific millennials, uh, we have a chance at winning their votes, and hopefully if we persuade the soul, we can win them to the principles. And I do believe that the fundamental conversation that needs to happen right now, if conservatives are to be effective, is around freedom. And demonstrating the difference, the very stark difference, the black and white difference between states that have Democratic governors who are implementing petty tyrannies into our lives, limiting our freedoms with significant abundance, and doing so in a, in a manner that is, is, I think, well outside of the realm of common sense versus states where there has been a common sense response. Because when you look at that and you can make that contrast, you can tell the millennial, hey, even if you don't necessarily like uh, our president, you want to vote for the principles that are going to give you the best chance at flourishing. And there are seven stories in the book in uh, Bellwether Blues that I look at through anecdotal evidence. Each of these individuals was able to come to that conclusion as well. They decided to vote for certain principles that led them to say, what, whatever I think of, of the then candidate Donald Trump, I'm going to vote for him because what I see in him represents what I want my future to look like. You, you used a phrase in your answer, and that is uh, paid tyrannies. And, and again, I wonder if, if in trying to, to, to push forward your suggestion that we have sort of a, a kinder, gentler approach to someone uh, in, in your own sphere of influence, if, if paid tyrannies may be a little rough. And, and maybe you think to yourself, and, and if so, by all means, you, know, you call it out and call it what it is. But give me an example of a governor's paid tyranny. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me just make sure that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Petty tyranny. Petty. Uh, so small tyrannies, 
petty tyranny. A great example is uh, when a governor comes out or a mayor comes out and says uh, that church is absolutely not an option. You cannot congregate in churches, even if you're in parking lots and you're meeting together. We're going to find you. We're going to find your license plate. We're going to force you into 14-day quarantine. This happened in the city of Louisville, I believe, in Kentucky. It's happening in California and in New York where they're shutting down synagogue services. That is a petty tyranny, or you could even call it a large tyranny, because people with the fundamental desire to uh, exercise their faith, that infringes upon the First Amendment freedom that they have. Um, and then in the case of protesters, where people are out protesting, and I, I think in many cases with peaceful protests, and rightfully so with the injustice that occurred with George Floyd's life, uh, the governors are now coming out, the same ones that said that you can't meet and congregate for a church service in the parking lot in your cars, saying that the protesting is absolutely acceptable and essential. Uh, so that is one stark contrast between how they're responding. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in what they're saying because it, it fits the narrative of what they believe in. John Jacobowski is the author of Bellwether Blues, and uh, it's a conservative awakening of the millennial soul. It's already on its second printing, and it just came out this spring. So congratulations on the success of the book. Obviously, it's striking a chord with some folks. You mentioned um, uh, religion. What were your thoughts on uh, the president's photo op uh, when he you know, cleared out uh, Lafayette Park in D.C. And, and had the photo op in front of the church there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It created a, just a, a firestorm of, of anger and frustration. And, um, you know, I think that the president's heart uh, was not misaligned. I think the timing was off. Because I asked the question, what if President Obama had done the very same thing? I can tell you right now, I, would, for one, would have been applauding him for so doing. I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for two years when I attended graduate school. And I can tell you this, anywhere the president would go, if you stood in the way, and you remained resistant, you were going to be forcibly removed from the position in which you were standing. Um, so that, to me, was, was kind of normal operating procedure that they would move people out of the way. I just don't think that the, the timing was struck right, and as a result, there's a lot of people that are out there uh, that are very frustrated by that, arguing that he's stepped on the toes and removed forcibly protesters. So I, I think timing was off, but I, I don't think that the intentions of the act of going to a church that was burnt by protesters and saying, we're going to stand in faith and we're going to stand for truth. I don't think that the intentions were misaligned. I just think the way that it was done probably was um, not timed well. John, when when you see in, in recent days, um, uh, you know, Colin Powell and James Mattis and others uh, come out very strongly against this president, and, and you're a conservative, it must give you pause and make you think, geez, what, you know, what are we doing here? While on the other side, you seem to have, have uncovered some research that shows a lot of millennials sort of deserting the left in droves in certain places in, in key swing states. So when you see these, these former military leaders uh, you know, expressing very strong opinions about the president, you know, what say you to that? So I think there's three things we should look at when we vote for a president. Um, I don't think it's boiled. It can be boiled down to one topic, and, and this is one of the things that you know gave me great hesitation when I, when uh, President uh, Trump, well, then he was a candidate. Um, I was one of the people going for anybody but him in that primary of 2016. Right. Uh, but then eventually, as time went on and he won that primary, to to my shock and chagrin, 
um, as we went on for six months, I had to make a decision. Am, am I going to vote for this individual who I thought was going to be the worst representative and ambassador of the values that I believe in? And, and as I looked at several factors, again, three things, the first thing I looked at was character. And I had some legitimate concerns about the character of President Trump, about his past, about the way that he communicated. And I talked to a lot of uh, individuals out there who, who have those concerns. I think Colin Powell has concerns like that. And that concern has driven many people away from voting for him. Obviously, uh, many people still stayed with him. So I think it was the second two reasons that really won the day. And the second one is his policy making. What policies is the president or the candidate standing for when he goes to the ballot box? Who are the people that he's going to have working for him within his organization? And when you have people like Mike Pence and you have uh, people like uh, Ben Carson on your staff, you have leaders of significant magnitude and character. It says a lot about that candidate and their ability to bring these people on. And then the policy making. now that we've had almost four years to look at the effects of uh, President Trump's policymaking, as a conservative, I, you give that an adamant thumbs up. So it's really the third point that makes or breaks how uh, I believe somebody should vote for president, and that is who they are placing on the bench. Who are they placing in the judicial branch? And one of the things about President Trump is he has done an amazing job from the very beginnings of his campaign. One of the things that most convinced conservatives who were deciding whether or not to vote for him was the list that he put out of Supreme Court justice nominees. And it's not just the Supreme Court. There's hundreds of other offices at the appellate court level and the district court level at the federal level who are going to have an impact on our lives for 40 to 50 years. So who the president nominates on the bench and what we're looking for are jurors and uh, justices who have an originalist version of the Constitution in order to ensure that the, the very things enumerated in that document are lived out today for us and for our children's children. So that third element that uh, President Trump has been incredibly resolute and sound on, that makes that vote, uh, voting for President Trump, the thing that I stand behind and recommend. Got a friend here in, in the D.C. area, John, who says, uh, and I thought this was very much on point, that he has learned to look at what uh, this White House does as opposed to what the White House says in many cases. And I think uh, I think you touch on that as well. By the way, John's book has been uh, praised by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who says that uh, Jonathan's unique perspective on swing state politics gives a deeper understanding of what makes Ohio a bellwether state and what it takes to win in the 21st century. And, and, and look, you're a, although you lived in the D.C. area, you've lived in major metropolitan areas, you're in a small town now, a small area. So would you concede that, that your perspective is quite a bit different than lots of folks who are in major metropolitan areas, and for good reason? No doubt about it, yes. Um, when I was at Georgetown, 99% of the student body that I was in in the public policy department, they were – um, Democrats and uh, a variety of ranges of Democrats, but all voting for uh, then-candidate Barack Obama. Um, and then the few conservatives that you find there, the few Republicans are apologetic about their position because you're, you're in such a small minority of people that have that worldview. And then when I moved back to uh, Ohio, which is where we're from, and my wife and I wanted to raise our children here where our families are, uh, the the individuals at the same age range had a whole different set of experiences, different set of worldviews. So yes, no no question, there are millennials in swing states of America that are very different than the coastal states of America. 
I have a, a close friend who is a screenwriter in Hollywood. He's written some big movies, movies that star people like Michael Douglas and Clint Eastwood, and yet um, he often finds himself on the short end of the stick in terms of uh, job opportunities in Hollywood because it is such a progressive uh, industry and city. And and I wonder what you might say to millennials who are listening now who are conservatives but but live in these areas that are overwhelmingly democratic. What advice would you give to them? Well, I, I think the, the most effective way to build bridges is through relationship. And networking that, that is done through relationship is always more powerful than coming into an interview cold with that worldview where questions might be asked of you that that they're going to kind of be feeling out what your worldview might be. Um, but if you have a relationship on the inside with somebody and you network effectively, you can overcome some of those biases because I think Hollywood needs fresh voices with different worldviews. Uh, it's, they're creating films that need to be sold, and the more their values are misaligned from the things that make everyday Americans in middle America, or as they say, flyover country, uh, as the, those values that we re, that resonate with us, if they continue to create productions that are misaligned with that, I think they're going to see a loss in revenue. Um, so I think there's a great chance for fresh voices, and you will be in the minority, and that's something to know in advance. But networking and networking effectively through relational development is a recommend, good recommendation for any industry. Jonathan Jakubowski is our guest. Uh, we have a few moments left with him. Uh, the book is Bellwether Blues. Do you ever feel like, you, you, you mentioned you're in a flyover state. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia, a state that has certainly always felt sort of maligned and ignored. Do, do you feel like when, when you watch national politics that you guys are just getting totally blown off and nobody uh, gives you an ear at all? And if so, do you think that that's led to the sort of uh, the anger and the divided nature of politics in America today? Yeah, I, I definitely think that the the primary stations that we're watching, the mainstream channels on mainstream media, they're, they're speaking to the radical elements of the coast. Uh, they're forgetting about most Americans who, uh, you know, live a very different lifestyle and have a very different worldview than that which they espouse. And I do think that that has led to some frustration, but more than frustration, it's led to mistrust. And there is a severe level of mistrust with any institution of media that is out there espousing a specific worldview. And they've only doubled down on that, Burke. They, they haven't gotten better. They haven't tried to reach back out to uh, middle America. And it's going to impact them. It's going to negatively impact them for some time to come. And I think part of that is now the rise of other sources of media where uh, people can kind of get in, into silos and uh, hear different versions of what their worldviews believe in. You're going to see more and more of those as we have over the last several years. Um, so I, I lament that because I, I think it's important for us to, to have uh, news that, that we can trust and rely upon that it's absent of bias. It would be great to return to that. I just don't see it happening in the near future. Yeah, there was a day not that long ago when uh, you could count on somebody like Walter Cronkite to, to play right down the mm -hmm. middle, and, and those days are certainly behind us. And lots of small towns like where you live have news deserts now where the newspapers are severely understaffed and in many cases are, are completely going away. I wonder, to play devil's advocate, uh, certainly there's media that swings way to the left, but if you only have a diet of Fox News or Newsmax or One American News, if that's the only thing you consume, uh, could that not also be an issue? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, and, and my lamentation is one of 
looking at it from both sides, that you, if we're so isolated into our own silos and we're not able to hear somebody else's voice, even if we disagree with them, uh, it, it can harm us, it can hurt us, it can limit our ability to, to generate strong dialogue and conversation. Uh, but th- that's the problem. We we don't have uh, we don't have these kind of uh, the ability to trust these institutions who are delivering worldviews without bias. So I'm saying that as a general statement. And then I, I think we're, how we break down those barriers is news as one source. But again, it's really having interpersonal relationships with people who don't look like us, who might not be our age, people that might not even agree with us on certain topics. But if we can generate dialogue with them, we can learn a whole lot from them. And I'm sure they will also in turn learn a whole lot from us. Yeah, and one of the things I can tell you that, that has been encouraging in the aftermath of, of that horrible murder of George Floyd is that it sure seems like we have hit something of a tipping point in conversation where uh, folks uh, on all sides are a little more willing to listen now. This doesn't seem like something that's going to be a, a flash in the pan, that it, it might actually lead to some of those uh, open discussions that I think are, are really important. And, and the one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Jonathan, and, and by the way, Jonathan Jakubowski is the author of Bellwether Blues, A Conservative Awakening of the Millennial Soul. You know, uh, uh, you millennials have greatly benefited from Al Gore inventing the Internet. And, uh, and, and I wonder what, you, what you're going to do with that. Uh, you know, you guys are great at, at social media. And um, look, the, everyone now uses uh, Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook and all those platforms since millennials sort of grew up with that as an extension of their left or right hand, might that help turn the conversation around at all in 2020? Well, if you don't mind, Burke, I'll just circle back real quickly to what you said, because I think you made a really great point on uh, what, what the George Floyd uh, murder has caused us to do. Um, I, I played football at Bowling Green State University. I was a Falcon. Urban Meyer was my coach my first year. Um, but for the five years that I was there, I, I gained dozens of relationships with, with black brothers. And I call them brothers because we lived those five years in a state of common vision, like family, probably family closer than you can get beyond your nuclear family than most other things in life. And through those relationships, I was able to get deep into the content of the character of the man, not the color of the skin. You embrace the diversity and you learn from the diversity, but we love each other well beyond just the simple color of our skin. And that kind of relationship has driven me to be in a position now where the, this, uh, this recent uh, crisis has occurred and ensued in our nation to have deep and meaningful conversations and to empathize with individuals who I deeply care about understanding the problems that they have in order to find a way to work with them to address those issues at a local level. And that's a perfect demonstration. It's perfect evidence of how through relationship and through reaching out and through investing into somebody's life, the richness that comes from that is, is greater than just a political win. Uh, the solutions our nation needs are much further upstream than politics. Politics flows downstream of culture and culture flows downstream of faith, family, and freedom. And just to if you don't mind, just to respond to that internet question, I think because we are on social media so much, because every day we're seeing disputes and battles and uh, all sorts of insults being lodged one way or another, now more than ever, this generation needs authentic relationship, which is the clarion call for Bellwether Blues. Look, if we shout across one another and we never listen, then nothing gets accomplished. And one of the things I've really appreciated about this conversation is I think no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, you've got some great common sense advice of, of how to, to listen to one another because there's a lot more that, that uh, you know, Americans have in common than divides us. Wouldn't you agree? 
A hundred percent. And I think the one thing that we can really rally around is the recognition. We just had Memorial Day. Um, and, you know, as we're now we're memorializing George Floyd, we also have memorialized hundreds of thousands of people who laid down the greatest thing, which is their life, in order for us to advance freedoms that they believed in, that they stood for, that they fought for, and that they died for. And when we can rally around that as Americans, then I think we can unite around something beautiful, something aspirational, and something that will allow us to extend that to future generations. You know, if you ever run for office, you may just get my vote. Jonathan Jakubowski is the author <laughs> of Bellwether Blues. Hey, good luck with the book, and you're off to the races on this thing. People are loving it. Burke, thanks so much. I, I'm really honored by the interview. I appreciate the questions and the candid conversation. You do an excellent job, and I, I really appreciate that. Great to have you on the show. The, uh, the book, again, Bellwether Blues, available now. Bookstores everywhere at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever you find great books. You can also visit Jonathan online at bellwetherbluesbook.com. And uh, thank you wherever you're listening from today. I appreciate it. The Big Time Talker podcast, the service of our friends at speakermatch.com. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Hey, thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.